You've tuned into The Dr. Lowe Show with naturopathic doctor, Dr. Lauren Noel, where you hear the best in natural medicine, nutrition, and mindset from the world's top doctors, authors, influencers, and Dr. Lowe herself. Trying just to pop a pill for a symptom? You've got the wrong exit. Seeking doable ways to live a happier, healthier life and have fun doing it? Welcome to The Dr. Lowe Show. Hello, everybody. Dr. Lowe here. Thanks for joining me for another show. I hope that all of you are doing really well and enjoying your day wherever you are. I am fresh off Memorial Day weekend. My mom is here visiting from Colorado, hanging with the family. And what I did for my Memorial Day, I deep cleaned and organized my garage. I feel like I just lost 50 pounds, not going to lie. You know how things just slowly get crazy over days, weeks, months, and then you look back going, what happened? That's what happened with my garage. I think as Zion got older and we got rid of some of his old stuff, we just put it in that holding tank of the garage and then eventually I wasn't able to park in there anymore. (laughs) So it feels really nice to have a parking space again. This episode is provided by Organifi. Questions for you. Do you deal with sugar cravings? or carb cravings. Some people say, no, I don't deal with sugar cravings. And I look at their diet and it's like pastas, breads, cookies. I'm like, I think there's a sugar issue, (laughs) but yes, carbs are sugar. Do you deal with sugar carb cravings? Are you under more stress? Do you feel anxious? When patients come into my office dealing with these symptoms, the first two things I think about, how are their nutrients that they're taking in? A lot of times when we're craving foods, it's because we don't have true energy from our diet. And the first thing I think of is adding in nutrients, especially greens, because greens have so many micronutrients in them. The second thing I think about are their adrenal glands. Our adrenal glands are these two little glands that sit on top of your kidneys, sort of like hats on your kidneys, and they help you deal with stress. Now, they have a huge job in the body, but actually really little, and they get tired. They get really worn out based on our modern day lifestyle. A tool that I reach for a lot with my patients is green is the green juice from Organifi. So what I love about it is it has both of those two bases covered. It has micronutrients in it from the greens, and it also has an, an adrenal adaptogen called ashwagandha, which helps your body deal and adapt to stress, which gives you more energy. It helps you deal with stressful events better, and it also helps to calm your mood like anxiety. In this episode, we talk about the power of having a morning routine, and this green drink would be a perfect addition to your morning routine so that you feel more supported throughout your whole day. To get your green drink with a 20% off discount for my listeners, head over to Organifi.com, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and at checkout, enter Dr. Low 20, D-R-L-O-2-0, and you'll get 20% off. All right, guys, let's jump into the show. Enjoy. Hey guys, we have a new guest on the podcast. We have Jessie Jean, and she is a certified eating psychology coach who helps women stop feeling crazy around food and start feeling confident in their relationship with food and body. She specializes in binge, compulsive, emotional, and overeating. 
a lot of us are like raising our hands. Yes, let's talk about it. Jessie uses mental collaboration and metacognition techniques to help her clients achieve freedom inside her four-month food freedom online program. Jessie, so happy to have you. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to connect. I knew we needed to have you on to talk about the topic of food because mm-hmm. so many of us I'm sure are thinking, you know, the first month I did well with this whole quarantine thing. And then by the second month, as it continued, it's like, okay, already I'm using food to calm my nerves. I can say for myself, like I was eating as healthy as possible for several weeks, cooking everything from scratch. And then I just started to kind of get over it. Well, yeah. (laughs) And every bit I'm like, oh, what's happening? It's, it's exhausting. I mean, I'm just missing going out to eat and getting something besides my own cooking too. So, you know, even exactly. if you're not struggling with food, this is a hard time. Yes, it is. So I love how relevant this topic is. And in just talking about body image and I did some Instagram stalking because we haven't had the pleasure of meeting in person yet, but that's all that you stand for is loving your body exactly how it looks and just keeping it real online. It's really cool to see just like, Hey, look at my roles, <laughs> you know, like yeah, my body's beautiful and I'm owning it. I just think a lot of us really um, could use that, that refresher, you know, 100%. It's so, I think we get conditioned to a certain, you know, ideal body type and it becomes incredibly toxic. And if we can start, you know, opening our eyes and looking around when we're at the grocery store, when we're, you know, getting gas or running errands and, you know, ask ourselves, does anybody, does anybody look like our Instagram feed? Mm-hmm. The answer is no, you know, but we put so much pressure on ourselves to look like what we see on social media and in the media and it is exhausting. Yeah, it is completely exhausting. And it takes you out of the moment. How's you looking outside of yourself and looking at how you feel and, you know, more of how you look actually. And, and I I have to say, I don't know anyone who would feel comfortable in their skin and enjoy a moment if you're constantly thinking about how you look. Absolutely not. No, if you're, you're sucked into wondering what other people are thinking about you, there's no way you can be present and extract joy from the moment. And that's really all we're promised. And so, you know, after spending a decade of my life in the struggles with binging and overeating and emotional eating and just really hating my body and dealing with so much insecurity, I felt like when I finally crawled my way out of that, I call it the mental hell hole. When I crawled my way out of that, I, I knew it was my moral obligation to help other women who were struggling with this because it, I mean, it'll, it's a life train. And if you don't tackle it, I, you know, I've coached women who are in their sixties who have dealt with it from the time they were in their teens. Mm. And so if we can start looking at this and having healthy, honest conversations around it, there's a lot of power and a lot of healing to be had. You know, I think of that that saying that time heals all wounds. And I don't think that's necessarily true because you can talk to women who are senior citizens who deal with the same wounds as when they were kids. And it really is, you got to get to the root of that wound and have that healed up. So you're not constantly living your life in response to that wound and protecting yourself from it. Mm, 100%. I could not agree more. So you mentioned your own personal history with it you know, like a 10 year crawling yourself out of your mental hell hole. What would, are you comfortable talking about maybe what had led to these disempowered patterns that you acquired? Yeah, absolutely. So it was kind of an interesting, um, 
I say an interesting start into a disordered relationship with food in my body because the way it started was I was in high school and, um, you know, before high school, I really didn't have a concept of my body. I didn't, you know, I didn't look in the mirror and think, oh, I'm beautiful or I'm ugly. I just, I just existed in my skin. And I know it can start a lot younger, these insecurities, but for me, it, I, I just had no concept. I got into high school and um, I really started struggling with perfectionism. And it was out of, honestly, out of fear. I grew up pretty poor. And I remember my parents saying, you know, if you want to go to college, you are going to have to um, get scholarships. And so I took that message and I thought, okay, I have to be the best at everything in order to get out of the situation that I'm in. I was homeless when I was five and it was, I mean, it was just a really scary experience to not have a place to call home when you're a child. And I knew if I were, if, if I were ever to get out of this, I had to, I had to strive. I had to get scholarships. And so I started sleeping very little four to maybe five hours a night all through high school. And that was because I put myself in all these extracurriculars and sports and advanced classes. And I just did everything I possibly could to excel so I could maybe earn a scholarship and get out of the situation that I was in. And in that time, you know, sleeping very little, I was exhausted. And so I started turning to food in order to, um, in order to fuel my perfectionism and, my body, obviously I was growing, but my body started to change. And I remember feeling this sense of defeat. Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I gaining weight? And I was in gymnastics, dance, cheerleading. And that's also a very, you know, you're very focused on your, your body in those, in, in those endeavors. And, um, I started to feel like I was somehow failing and I started to restrict my eating. And as I restricted, I could only do that for so long. I would snap and I would start binging. And I didn't even know that eating disorders were a thing. I didn't know that binge eating was a thing. I just knew that I was really embarrassed and I wanted to hide and eat in secret. And I didn't know why I couldn't control myself with food. And so these patterns continued where I would restrict and restrict and restrict. And then I'd break and I'd binge and I'd overeat until the point I was like physically sick to my stomach. My mouth would be raw from, from the sweet and the salty and just how much I would consume. My fingers would be swollen. These patterns continued into college. And, um, I remember at one of my lowest points in college, I started questioning whether life was even worth it. I didn't know if I wanted to continue living this way. I was mentally exhausted. I was thinking about food, whether it was in the forefront of my mind or in the back of my mind, all the time. I was addicted to the scale. I never felt like I could work out hard enough. And I, I was at this breaking point and I mustered up every ounce of courage I could and every penny I could get together to put myself in therapy. And I started to go to therapy. And then I was in, I start. I put myself in Overeaters Anonymous, which is like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I still continued in these cycles and these patterns. And I thought, you know what? I'm I'm trying so hard to get out of this. And I feel like I'm sinking deeper in these patterns of, you know, restricting and then binging and overeating. And just, I continued to gain weight and I was so afraid. And you know, that, that continued on for over a decade of my life. It was just fear, insecurity, and, you know, weight loss, weight gain, and never feeling like I could be normal around food. I felt like there was this outside force that was driving me to do these things with food that I intellectually knew I didn't want to do. And it was, it was very scary. Mm, that is, that must've been so discouraging because you're doing all the things. Mm, 
all the things. And when you, I mean, yeah, it, it is, it's disheartening. And, you know, when you're so afraid and you're so embarrassed and so ashamed and you finally muster up the courage to try and do something about it and you don't feel like anything's working, the defeat that I felt at that point was, it was overwhelming. And so then that's when I decided to turn towards the fitness industry. And I thought, you know what, if I just dive headfirst into fitness and nutrition, maybe I'll be able to get, you know, find my way out. And then I found competing and bikini competitions. And wow, that just took my eating disorder to the next level. Mm -hmm. Um, and I suffered even more and I got even more insecure when I started doing competitions, I felt even less worthy. And so it wasn't until I started to stumble upon some very very bright, very intellectual individuals. And I started to research nutrition and, and the metabolism. And then I started to look into neuroscience and I started to read all these research articles on how the brain works and behavior change. And it was fascinating to me because I started to feel like I was pulling a thread on why I was acting the way I was, why I was behaving in ways that I was. And I started to, to understand there's these different areas of our brain that are responsible for different things. And it just became this thing where I was like, okay, I think I'm onto something. Mm. And, and I, I started to feel hope again. Mm. Was it something that was like a light switch? Like I've got it. I've made a shift or was it this slow sort of like a dimmer that you're turning on? <laughs> mm, yeah. Great question. So it definitely wasn't like this massive aha moment. Like, Oh, I've got it figured out. It was more so with each little step I was taking, I felt like I was making progress in the right direction. And it started by understanding nutrition for more than just a meal plan. Mm -hmm. I started to understand, you know, the macronutrients and micronutrients and, and these vitamins and these minerals and how these things function in our body and how they impact our cognitive abilities. And so I started to understand nutrition. And then I realized, you know what, it's not just the nutrition. Like I'm, I'm focusing on the diet thinking that's the thing, but what I've got going on here and what actually led me down this rabbit hole was um, a lot of individuals in my family have struggled with substance abuse. And so I was reading a lot into addiction and behavior change. And I started to realize, wow, I think what they're like these, these neuroscientists, when they're talking about addiction and what happens in the brain around drugs and alcohol and pornography and all these different things, I was reading this and I was thinking, you know what, this sounds a lot like my brain with food and my body. Mm. And it was scary and relieving all at once, but I felt like I finally started to have an answer that there are these neural pathways that have formed in my brain that are causing me to feel like I'm I'm, I'm driven, I'm impulsive with food because I've programmed in this response, much so like an alcoholic or a drug addict becomes addicted to, you know, what this substance does to their brain and their body. This is how I've, I've created this in my own brain with food because of the way that I've interacted with food through habituation of restricting and then binging. And, and the thing that I started to realize was wait a second, you know, the protocol for healing addiction is abstinence. That's how we weaken these neural pathways that are causing us to feel, you know, causing addicts to feel impulsive towards their substance of choice. Well, we can't do that with right. like we need food. And so I started to realize, well, 
I'm pretty sure what's going on in my brain is very similar to everything I'm reading about addiction. The protocol is different. And that sent me down another rabbit hole of figuring out how do I retrain my brain around a substance that I need mm-hmm. and I need to have a healthy relationship with. But it also, I need to not have, you know, these off-limit foods that I put on this pedestal that I, you know, when I, when I fatigue, I end up binging on. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely a journey of, of discovery and a lot of trial and error. Really helpful to hear that parts of the story because it isn't so cut and dry. There's a lot of, a lot of parts to it. So what do you feel like were the things, and this is an indirect question to answer for people, like people listening, what can I do if I'm in that, in that mental hell hole? So things I hear is looking at nutrition as nutrients, as medicine, and being able to understand how that can help to, you know, give the brain what it needs. So more like medicine instead of calories. Yeah. Um, I think that's really powerful. Were there other things that you felt like really started to build those new pathways in your brain? Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So it was a lot of, um, shifting perspective one was definitely on nutrition instead of calories and how does this affect my weight it was how does this affect how i feel how do i feel do i feel good do i feel cognitively clear do i feel lethargic so yeah definitely that shift but then also understanding the the neuroscience of behavior change understanding why we get into these repetitive self-sabotaging cycles. And for me, I felt so empowered when I was researching and studying. And then when I went to the Institute for the Psychology of Eating, I just felt so incredibly empowered to start to understand the science of behavior change and how our brain works. Because while my therapists that I that I saw were definitely well-intentioned, and it was therapeutic in the sense that talking things out are very therapeutic, but I wasn't understanding why am I the way I am? Why am I behaving the way that I am? And when I started to understand the brain and these different healing techniques like mental collaboration, metacognition techniques, when I learned how to start working in sync with the brain, I started to utilize different techniques to retrain my brain, different I would do different things in the morning. I started, you know, monitoring my self-talk and auditing it. And I started to understand, well, this is why I am the way I am is because I've conditioned myself and, and my, you know, environmental upbringing has conditioned me to be this way. And so, you know, this self-hate and this, these cycles with food are stemming from deeper issues. But for so long when I was in therapy, I, I had felt like, okay, we're going back to my childhood, which is helpful for sure but I just need to stop binging and overeating and feeling nuts with food in my body. And so what I learned was, okay, how do I stop doing these things with food? And one of the ways that I, like I said, the shift in seeing nutrition as medicine, but also um, in starting to trust that I, I had this perception that if I wasn't on a diet, then then I would spiral out of control with food and my weight would increase and increase and increase because anytime I would give myself, you know, like a cheat day or a cheat meal, I would go nuts. Right. And so when I started to learn our body self-regulates and we're designed to be intuitive eaters, 
we can just really screw things up. I thought there's got to be a way to get back to that. Like we have hunger and fullness cues and hormones that support those. And how do I listen to that? How do I reestablish trust in my body? And I had to learn the tools to stop binging and stop overeating and find peace with food and, and, and kind of calm that chaos in my life. And then I started doing even more of the deeper healing work in regards to, well, why did I get on a diet in the first place? There's an unworthiness issue. I don't feel worthy in the body that I'm at. And so I kind of quieted the struggles with food and then I dug deeper into really the emotional aspect of my healing journey um, and kind of all of that combined. It was definitely a multidimensional approach, but as I started to utilize all these different healing modalities, things really started to shift for me and I saw, I saw this beautiful light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. A word that came up in my mind as you were talking was forgiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of how we talk to our friends and if we're in that history of being abusive with our own thoughts and our language to ourself. And if we were to kind of take that as how, if we were to talk to our friends in the same way we talk to ourselves, that's, that might even just that in and of itself is a good question to ask you. Do I talk, you know, the same way to myself as I do to my friends, probably mm-hmm. a lot worse, but you have to, let's say you are abusive to your friend, right? You don't all of a sudden start saying, oh, well, you're pretty, you know, you're this, you're that, you're worthy. It's really about taking ownership and apologizing first. So Mm -hmm. I thought about that for ourselves. If we've been abusive to ourselves, rather than, you know, first saying all the positive things, we need to forgive ourselves because we did the best that we could with what we knew at the time. And now that we know better, we do better. 100%. And that is such a, a beautiful a beautiful realization when we, when we get to that point of man. And I think the best way that I've been able to, is to think about my younger self, think about myself at, you know, five, six years old. Like I didn't choose to be homeless. I didn't choose to encounter the things that I went through. I also didn't choose to have dysfunction in my relationship with food. Like you said, I was doing the best I knew how, and And unfortunately, you know, society and our unrealistic expectations that we have as women on ourselves from society's pressures don't help. But if we can start to be kind to that little girl inside of us, that younger self, I always, you know, when I'm really having a hard time, when I'm being critical of myself, I think about myself at five, six years old. And I sometimes I'll even pull out a picture of myself at that age. And I think, you know what, would I ever talk to her the way that I'm talking to myself right now? Would I, what does she need? What does that little girl in me need? And when I can take my brain to that space, I can honor and respect myself much in in a much deeper way. And so one of the things that, you know, I try and encourage women to do is, is think about your think about your younger self think about that little girl she's living inside of you and when she's crying out when she's lashing out when she's engaging in maybe some of these self-sabotaging behaviors what is she like what is she crying out for is she insecure because she doesn't feel connected to people and she thinks that the solution is you know beating her body into a certain form so she can be accepted but what does she really want maybe she just really wants to be connected and to be loved and so how can i start to respect her and meet her needs and treat her with with love and kindness. hundred mm, percent. Let's say for the ladies listening or men listening too, we all get, got these issues. Um, they look in the mirror, they don't like the reflection they don't like how their body looks. Maybe they have an image of how they remember their body looking five years ago, 10, 20 years ago, 
or they're looking at themselves and feeling like they don't match up to their friends or the different images they see. So how can they start to cultivate a positive body image? Mm, yeah, what a what an important question. Um, so I think the first thing that we have to recognize is that in order to experience more and get out of these toxic negative body image cycles, we have to start seeing more. We become so honed in and zeroed in on nitpicking our body, nitpicking the way we look, our appearance. But as one of my good friends, Mary says, our body is not an image, it's an experience. Mm. And if we can recognize we were not designed to be an ornament for others viewing pleasure, but rather this earth suit, if you will, is home to our soul. And if we can start seeing more in ourselves, we can take the amount of pressure that's on our, the way that we feel about our body image and we can start to reduce that by recognizing, okay, maybe, maybe it's not going from hating our bodies into loving our bodies. It's going from maybe not loving our body to recognizing we're so much more than our bodies. So, so an activity I share with some of the women that I work with, and this is, this can go for men as well, is what if we got out our journal and wrote down all of the things about us that were significant, that were important, that we valued, you know, I'm a, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend, I'm really compassionate, I care, I'm a great listener. Like what else is there about you? I always say the best affirmations for a poor body image have nothing to do with your body because they take us out of zeroing in on this negative image, you know, negative self-perception we have and help us to see more. And I always talk about we need to stair step our way into a positive body image. If we're in the place where you're saying things to yourself like, I, you know, I feel disgusting. These are some of the things I said, I feel disgusting. I'm gross. I'm ugly. Nobody would ever like, nobody would ever be attracted to this. Like if I'm taking ourselves from that headspace into, wait a second, I don't have to love the reflection that I see, but I do need to start respecting it and respecting it is not abusive language. And I need to start dressing my body in clothes that feel comfortable now, not waiting till I'm a certain size. And I also need to recognize I don't have to love the rolls or the cellulite or the wrinkles, but I do have to recognize I'm more than those things. So if we can get to a place of being neutral with our body image, and then we can stair step our way into more of a positive body image. A lot of times we're trying to jump with our affirmations from, you know, not loving ourselves into I'm beautiful. I love the way that I look. And we, we start thinking about things like that. And it's just, we're, we're still focusing on the same thing, our body. Let's go to a place of neutrality and focus on other aspects of who we are. Mm -hmm. I love what you brought up earlier is the neuroscience of the brain. That's actually mm -hmm. what got me into studying psychology with it, which then brought me to naturopathic medicine. So the brain really sucked me in as yeah. the first thing that blew my mind. So let's talk about it. So what happens in our brain when we struggle with compulsion around food? Mm, yeah, the brain is fascinating. And to anybody who's listening, who struggles, I just encourage you to research the brain, understand your brain. I think it, it helped me feel less crazy. So I was like, why do I do these things that I know I don't want to do? Like, what the heck is wrong with me? But the brain is fascinating. It's complex and it's simple all in one. It's just this magnificent thing. And yeah, so what happens when we get into these compulsive tendencies? Well, we have to understand that the brain has some, some primary goals to move us towards pleasure and away from pain. And things that are pleasurable can be, you know, things that are also self-sabotaging sometimes. 
And so that's why drugs and alcohol, pornography, gambling, shopping addictions happen is because we get these different, you know, feel good chemicals that release in our brain when we engage in some of those behaviors. Well, in, in the very same way, when we, when we have all this built up pressure around food and we don't allow ourselves to eat certain things or we feel guilty for eating certain things and then we we snap because you know we've been on a diet too long or whatever it is we can't do it or we're at a social event we snap and we you know we have some chocolate or have some sweets well first of all we have to understand that there is a mental and emotional aspect to struggling with compulsive behaviors with food and there's also a very physical aspect and so we have to we have to dissect both of them but you know, highly palatable foods that typically, you know, high carb, high fat, high sugar foods that are typically off limits on most diets. Well, when we're looking at the physical aspect, those things light up the brain's reward center. You know, when you, a potato is good, butter is good. When you put a potato and butter together, the brain is like ding, 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 jackpot. It's amazing. It's highly palatable. <laughs> you throw sugar in there, the brain lights up, it hits the jackpot. And so the brain likes that and it remembers the things that, that give it dopamine and serotonin and all the things that bring us, you know, those feel good feelings. Well, likewise, not only do, does that, and then we think this is the thing that we get mixed up on when it comes to compulsion with food. It's like, well, yeah, if those things light up the brain's reward center, I probably shouldn't have those. And so, you know, so that I can be more balanced and I won't crave those as much, but this is the problem is we are human beings. We're not robots and our brain, like we need to experience joy and pleasure and satisfaction when we eat. And so when you eliminate those things and then you start to have this built up internal pressure um, where you're craving those things, but you don't allow yourself to have those things and you're craving them more and more, and then you snap and you binge well, that is a massive release for your brain because mm -hmm. you've been white knuckling it to not have those things. And then the moment you make the decision that you're going to binge or you're going to overeat or you're going to eat those things before you even have a bite of those things, the brain releases all of those feel good chemicals. It's like, oh yes, relief. And so that's the mental emotional aspect of this is when we have these weird these weird fears with food, it also starts to, you know, it starts to program in this compulsion. And then through habituation, the brain is always looking for patterns. So as you repeat these cycles over and over, because when we typically binge or overeat or fly off the handle with food, we then feel guilt and the shame and that sends us back into the restricting and it's, it's cyclical. And so the brain is looking for patterns. And so it sees this pattern and it starts through habituation. It starts to program in these neural pathways. And I always liken it to tying our shoes. Most of us don't have to think about tying our shoe anymore. It's habitual. Well, the same way your patterns with food, your thought cycles, your emotional patterns become habitual. And if you don't know how to create pattern interrupts in that habitual cyclical process in your mind, it's very frustrating because it just continues to perpetuate itself. So you have to start understanding how to use these mental techniques and tools to first have self-awareness around what's going on internally and then create pattern interrupts. If you're starting to go down that toxic cycle of thinking or behaving, what can we do to, um, to not let it go down that slippery slope? How can we interrupt that pattern, get the brain to focus on something else so we can carve out new neural pathways? Because the science of of habit and behavior changes is, is not that it, it, we, we say this term that we can break a bad habit, but what we actually do is we edit and we replace a behavior because we have these triggers and we're seeking these certain rewards. Well, we need to have a, a replacement and we need to replace a behavior because 
you know, if you try not to do something or try not to think about something, what is it that like, if I say, don't think about a pink elephant, well, now everybody's thinking about a pink elephant. So we have to replace it. If I say, and this goes to, you know, when we're thinking about negative self-talk, if it's like, okay, don't think that way. Don't think that way. Don't think that way. You're just going to think that way. But if I say, okay, you got a pink elephant here there in your negative self-talk and you also have this purple unicorn, now the brain has an option. So we have to start giving the brain another option of what to focus on and how to reprogram itself because so many are stuck in these cycles because they just hate it and that's all they're focused on is these cycles. They don't have an alternative. That's so good. I love that example of don't think about an elephant. So, okay, obviously everyone just thought of it, but instead think about a pink unicorn. Yeah, right? <laughs> we about it and we're not thinking about the elephant at the same time. So it's a yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, it's like, this stuff, it, it kind of, it's kind of common sense, but it's really, right. we, we, we sort of glide over these topics and yep. think that we get it, but most of us really don't until we really go into this, that we're a human being, we need pleasure, so let's not white knuckle it. If we have certain pleasure behaviors that we're doing that we're not happy about, let's replace them with something that still gives us a lot of pleasure, but it also makes us feel good after the fact. we have to give the brain an alternative. And I think this is why it's so powerful to one of, one of the most powerful things we can do is start creating a vision for what do we want our relationship with food to look like? What do we want our relationship with our body to look like? How do we want our life to look? Because again, you know, where where our focus goes, energy flows, and we're just creating more of the same thing. If we don't start vision casting what it is that we want and start learning, how do we bridge the gap from where we're at to what it is that we want? And so often we stop with, you know, we stop at the point of, okay, here are my goals and I need to change my behaviors in order to get to these goals. But what many people don't understand is I call it the domino effect. And it's, the first domino that affects the results of our life are our beliefs and our beliefs inform our thoughts, the sentences that run through our head. And those sentences that run through our head, our thoughts inform our emotions, that one word vibration in our body, the emotions that we experience, what emotions we experience influence and direct our behaviors and those behaviors create our results. And so often we just stay on this, you know, outer outer rung of, okay, I need to change my behaviors, but then we're going, it's not in alignment with our beliefs, our thoughts are in our emotions. And eventually we tire out. If we can start to learn how to change beliefs, thoughts, emotions, it's game over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking of the vision cast. I love that, that term. And I think of, you know, like a weather forecast, it's like something externally saying, this is what it's going to look like. But a vision cast is coming from within yourself. You're looking forward and saying what this forecast is going to look like. And also just the topic of goals versus vision. So for me, I've never liked goals and, you know, I'll be 40 years old. I've been a doctor for 10 years. I've been doing this, you know, and still to this day, I can't stand writing goals. It just feels like I'm walking uphill. Yeah in sand or in cement, it just feels like I'm white knuckling it. Whereas a vision, it feels like it, it draws me forward. Something that mm. I'm looking in the horizon, but it's almost like it's, it's so beautiful and enticing. It has me move forward towards my goals anyway. Yes. And I feel like so often, um, I don't know if, if you felt this in your own life, like I have, but I felt for so long, I was my goal. I had a goal and I was 
it was like I was being driven by fear and, and scarcity and I was running away from something instead of this idea of a vision is like you said, running towards something that's enticing. Um, and I think there's a big difference in the energetics of running away from something and running towards something. And that's what a vision feels like to me. It's like, I'm running towards something beautiful instead of like, I have to have this goal because I feel like I'm not enough if I don't accomplish it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, so many of high achievers, like I have patients coming in, they're these top level CEOs or people that, you know, we would consider celebrities and they have used these dysfunctional patterns of thinking they're, they're not good enough. So they become these overachievers. So on the outside, it looks awesome, but in the inside, it's all messed up. Oh. Because <laughs> they think I'm nothing without this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, it's, we're not human doings, we're human beings. And can we practice being more and understanding that our worth and our value is not earned, it's intrinsic. And I think that switch for me was so, it was, it was such a breath of fresh air. It was so transformative to go from, you know what, if I, if I didn't accomplish one more thing, my value would not diminish. I, I have value because I have breath. I have value because I have life and and I don't have to earn it. Me running towards my vision enhances the flavor of my life. It doesn't add, it doesn't add more value or more worth to who I am as a human being. And being able to separate that and say, you know what? Yeah, maybe I do have some health and fitness goals, but achieving those doesn't make me more of a, of a, of a woman. It doesn't make me more valuable. It adds more flavor to my life. And that's it, you know? Yeah. Nothing changes your value no matter how much good you do, no matter how much bad you do. It's the same. You know, I think of like a, a dollar bill, you crumble it up, you could poop on it, you could rub it in dog poop, whatever. It's still a dollar. <laughs> the value never changes. I may not, you know, be as happy of a dollar bill based on all the crap on it, but it's still a dollar. So um, yeah, we're all, all the same in that. Um, let's talk about tangible things people can do because I love the conceptual part I think is first absolutely but then what can people actually do as a practice like maybe one thing daily they can start doing yeah I love talking about the tangibles I'm always so exhausted when I hear the big you know overarching right what do I do like tell me what to do it was so much of my journey just tell me how to stop binging please that's all I'm looking for I know I have childhood issues but please I don't want to go home and binge after this so yeah let's let's talk about that so my the first thing I would say to anybody who's resonating who struggles with these impulsive tendencies with food is stop labeling yourself you're not disordered you are not broken. You're experiencing maybe some dysfunction in your relationship with food. That's really frustrating, but you are not broken. You are entirely, you're, it's entirely fixable. Um, what you're dealing with. The second thing I would say is I understand the fear of spiraling out of control of weight gain, of feeling not good enough and feeling like your body is the problem. So I completely understand that. And what I would say is one of the things that changed everything for me was becoming educated. That doesn't mean you have to change. I, for me, I was so afraid to get help for so long because I thought, well, they're going to make me not diet or not pursue my fitness goals. And, and that was an absolutely terrifying thought. And so what I would say to the, to the individual who's resonating with that is don't feel like you have to change anything to start getting educated. If you start educating yourself on 
you know, how this works. And on, you know, my podcast, the Dear Body Podcast, I try and just educate a lot because that was a game changer for me. And just start opening your mind to understanding the science, understanding different healing modalities, just start educating, just start putting it in there and considering like, what could it be like if I learned more about intuitive eating? What could it be like if I worked on healing some of the emotional and mental components of myself? Like, what? Well, just start educating yourself. And then a tangible, I would say a tangible that I always recommend right off the bat, one of the first things I share with the women inside the Food Freedom Online program is let's start taking advantage of the power of a morning routine. And I'm such a firm believer in a morning routine and doing some meditation, um, some future pacing, a journaling activity and affirmations and, and gratitude practice first thing in the morning, because in all of my you know, studies of the brain and just how fascinated I was by it, you know, I started to understand that our brain is most susceptible to influence and change first thing in the morning when our brain, brain waves are in a more relaxed state. And so if we can capture that first, instead of waking up and getting on our phone and kind of just continuing the patterns of our life, if we can capture the first few moments of our day and set the intention for our day through meditation, through gratitude affirmation practice, it is a game changer. And I'm so passionate about a morning routine that I offer it. Um, I, I do a free morning routine challenge. I go live inside of a, um, a Facebook or an open Facebook group every um, Monday through Friday for 12 minutes. I lead a guided meditation on food and body image, insecurity, confidence, self-sabotaging behaviors, how we break those cycles because meditation, there's in all the healing modalities that I've studied and that I teach, there's been no, no, no greater healing modality than meditation in terms of the amount of research that's been done on meditation. It actually increases the size, the strength, and the number of folds in the prefrontal cortex on a dose-dependent basis. So if you're struggling with feelings of impulse with food, we have to strengthen the area of our brain that's responsible for making decisions, which is our prefrontal cortex. And through meditation, it's not about emptying the mind. I know I used to think meditation was this weird woo-woo spiritual thing that I didn't, I thought, you know, only people who drank green juice and ate only organic could do that. And it's not. It's really, it's about training the brain's ability to focus, whether it's the breath or the, the person guiding the meditation. Um, and it strengthens our internal locus of control. So it reduces the feeling of impulsivity. So I would say that would be one of my first recommendations in terms of tangibles is capture the power of the morning, do a morning routine. And um, it doesn't have to be long, you know, 12, 15 minutes, and you can really set the tone for your day. Mm -hmm. Yes. So good. I'm going to be doing a podcast episode in the future, sharing my um, brain scan results. I went to the Amen Clinic and they did a brain scan and it was just jaw dropping. So fascinating. Really? So it's coming. But one of the things, just spoiler alert, was they said, okay, your prefrontal cortex is a little tired. It's like kind of Ooh. taking a nap. <laughs> wow. So interesting. Yeah. So that was one of the things they said is meditation. So oh. yeah. So powerful. It is so powerful. So amazing. So where? And listeners, join your Facebook group. Mm, yes. Um, I will give you the link to, it's a free okay. morning routine challenge. I'll give you guys that link so you can cool. access it. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, in the show notes. Um, I talk about it a lot on my social media and then um, on my, my podcast, the Dear Body Podcast. I talk a lot about my morning routine and just 
all more of more of this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's it's one of those things I have to constantly. I I don't like saying have to. It's one of those things I get to revisit time and time again because I'll be great about my morning routine, and then something I'll get some curveball my way, and then I get out of the habit. So I just go back to it, and then just keep you know revisiting those routines. Oh, girl, I, that's how I was. I was really struggling. And I, I mean, we're human. We, we, it's, it's, and it's hard too. And I was really, really struggling getting consistent with it. And I know how powerful it is that I decided that this is selfishly why I started the morning, the free morning routine challenge. Cause I thought, you know what, if I invite all of my internet friends to join me and I go live every morning at five 30, obviously not everybody watches it live. They'll watch the Facebook video later, but I'm like, you know what, if I just invite all my internet friends and I show up every morning you know, at 5.30 AM, then, then I'm going to hold myself accountable. And you know what, that level of accountability, I've been consistent for the last three and a half months now. So I'm just going to keep going with this free morning routine challenge because it's really been such a gift to me to get consistent again with this practice. But if it, yeah, I mean, struggling with consistency is normal. It's just, we're, we're human. Yeah. hundred percent accountability. That's why we need each other. All right. Well, Jesse, I appreciate so much the time that you've given us and sharing through your struggles and your successes. And I know this is going to help so many people listening. So thank you so much for your time. Lauren, thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Dr. Low Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. And for more after the show, you can head over to drlowshow.com where you can find the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to the show and share with all your friends. And please head over to iTunes and leave the show a five-star review and leave a comment. I read each and every one and they warm my heart. Thank you so much again for joining us. I promise to keep bringing you fun, inspiring, empowering content. Until next time, lots of love and I'll talk to you soon.